Hello and welcome back to episode two of the Deep Sea Podcast. Subtitle, we still think this is a good idea. I'm Dr. Thomas Lindley. I'm here again with Dr. Alan Jameson. You all right, Al? Yeah. I believe it. All good. I believe it. You brimmy. No, no, no. It's all good. It's all good. Honestly, I'm a bit tired, but it's all good. It's been a hectic month. Coming up on today's show, we talk about the idea of the deep sea as an empty place devoid of life and that it's all about shallow living animals disappearing. But the heavy hitter is we have Don Walsh on for an interview. I found it really difficult to edit this because everything Don says is amazing. So I'm just going to let the interview run long and you won't hear a great deal from us on this one. I mean, you'll hear it in a second. What can you cut out of that? It's fascinating. And then we'll wrap up with our regular segment, Tales from the High Sea. Got a phone-in guest this time because lots of people are out there having adventures. So we might as well hear from them as well. But to lead into it, without further ado... Here is our interview with Don Walsh, the legend. So today we have uh, Captain Don Walsh of the United States Navy. Yeah, he spent a great deal of time as a commander of submarines. He was the Dean of Marine Programs and Professor of Engineering at the University of Southern California, amongst many, many other roles. Uh, I think he's probably been awarded every honour there is to be awarded. And he's still very much in support of ocean sciences especially in his work on the Ocean Sciences Board at the National Academy of Science. Uh, but of course, he's mostly known for his part in the first descent to the deepest place on the planet, the, the Challenger Deep, which he did with Jack Picard in 1960. He more recently joined the James Cameron Expedition for the Deep Sea Challenge uh, and the Five Deeps Expedition last year. So uh, despite reaching legendary status, what I personally like about Don the most is that he has no ego whatsoever. And he never takes himself too seriously, and he can cut through anyone else's ego like a knife with a simple one-liner, which I think is why you're on the show today. So, Don joins us from his house in Oregon. So, hello, Don. Hello to you. First question, Don, was I remember that day that you, me, and Rob McCallum did the world tour of every local radio station in Guam. And we were stood outside, and I remember you saying been 60 years and people keep asking me the same questions and those questions were was it dangerous and were you scared to which you replied i would never have done any of this if i was scared or if it was dangerous so my question to you is regarding the, the big challenge of deep dive what is the question that you would like like people to ask you you know people and i understand that they they want to know because it is well out of their realm of experience and it was of mine <laughs> At the time, were you scared? So I do my best to explain it. And uh, the other, how deep, what did you go, and what did you see? Those are kind of the the trilogy of most important questions. But if I were to ask, I'd just say, why? Because uh, it's so out of line with common everyday experience. I I think all of us understand the, the why of space and why that's important. Of course, in my view, space is a program where the oceans are a place. 99.99% 99.99% of us on this manned spacecraft we call planet Earth, we're not going to Mars or the moon. Somehow we have to understand the, the place where we live and how it works and, and how it doesn't work and what effect we're having on it. All big, weighty questions. And so that all comes into the why. And, and the why is knowledge to know. Because without knowledge, it's pretty hard to govern, understand, or exploit anything. Although we've never let that get in the way of making a lot of mistakes. Uh, you know, I always thought that in addition to missions to the moon and Mars, that there ought to be a nice mission to planet Earth. 
but the budgets for ocean studies are certainly nowhere near the sums that have been allocated to uh, space work. And, and they're both big science. You have to have a lot of kit, uh, a lot of uh, money to pay for the operations and so on. But the ocean is the same way. I mean, you can't do it on the cheap. You just can't go out with a small boat and a dog and do great science. You have to have ships. You have to have uh, short-side laboratories. Uh, and we're just not doing that. I'm not against space, but I am for parity with ocean studies. It's very nice to go to the moon and colonize Mars and all of that. But we basically don't understand the largest geographic feature on our planet. And I would think that would be very troublesome to most people. I completely agree. And the question of why is something that comes up a lot, for me at least as well. And it's one of those ones where I think, again, as humans' relationship with water is weird. If you turned the Mariana Trench, for example, upside down and made a mountain, and people only went, let's say, 10% up the mountain, the question you would ask is, why don't, why don't you go to the top? It wouldn't be, why did you go to the top? It would be, why didn't you? But because it's underwater, it's almost strange that it's, that it's the why did, you, why did you go all the way, as opposed to why are you not going all the way, if you see what I mean. I've always felt that when you know people have been asking me for years, you know, why do you spend all your time looking at the bits of the planet which are so far removed from humans? The ocean doesn't understand these imaginary lines that are drawn that says something <laughs> on this planet thinks this is shallow and this is deep, therefore this is important and this isn't. It's just one big body of water and it just moves around the planet as one. So we should understand all of it. Uh, that, I mean, that's, that's how I rationalize it in my head. I, I, I get asked that a lot too. Why haven't we been going down there more? I just give them back the numbers. If you can get to 6,000 meters, you can roughly look at 98% of the seafloor of the world ocean. Yeah. So for having the engineering and operational and, let's say, budgetary uh, ability to go somewhat more than half the full ocean depth, that is 6,000 meters against 11,000 meters, uh, and get 98%, that, that's what we call cost-benefit ratio, is very high. That's why we see today... Uh, I think half dozen or five to six manned submersibles, for example, and and probably not many more than that of unmanned submersibles that can achieve 6,000 meters all clustered around that depth. But only one is capable of full ocean depth uh, and doing it repeatedly, and that's uh, Victor Vescovo's uh, very elegant system. And I think I like to stress the point that it's a system, not just the submersible, it's the mothership equipped with that marvelous bottom mapping acoustic machines and the three unmanned landers and the sub. They all work together as a system. I've been saying for years, we needed, probably the world needed at least one system of this sort that could go everywhere. And I'm thinking of the model of the deep sea drilling project where you have this one drill ship that happens to be owned by the United States, but uh, it, it takes scientists from all nations who qualify and have the budget to do uh, their scientific work. Everybody doesn't have to have their own. That's, you know, where do you raise the flag kind of thing. And that doesn't do us much good in, in, in uh, studying the world ocean because there's no one nation has all of the marbles, all the capabilities, all of the talent. Uh, is so important for international coordination uh, and cooperation. And, and we seem to have that a bit in the space program, but it's a high-ticket item. You, you have to buy in, and it costs a lot of money. The next thing I wanted to ask you was, you will be aware that next month we're going to see the first paying tourists descending to Challenger Deep. Now, I have kind of slightly mixed feelings about that. I think it would be, I guess, arrogant to think that the, the Challenger Deep should be an exclusively science club. But then at the same time, 
it would be sad to see it become a bit like Everest, where there's just lots of people, you know, rocketing up and down, paying big top dollar to to, to go there. But at the same time, it, in the current funding climate, it it seems that high end extreme tourism, if that model could then punt money back into the science, then maybe there's 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 nothing wrong with that. You know, what are your thoughts about opening up Challenger Deep as a tourist attraction? I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, the purists among us, and you know them, and I know them, think that it's beneath us to uh, let the unwashed into what we do, and God forbid that they could participate. And, and you know from the history of oceanography, because it largely began in the UK, you know, in the 18th, well, actually 19th century, somewhere in there, a lot of it came through citizen, we call it citizen scientists now. But these were people who were just curious. They want to know about things. You had these naturalist societies in England that, uh, you know, walk along the seashore and collect critters and fly them. And then people started having aquaria in their homes. Media industry of the time would detect these trends and they would talk it up and they'd run articles. So uh, this vast, mysterious place was a place of enormous curiosity and attraction. But a lot of that came from frankly, more well-to-do people who could invest in modest activities along in the coastal oceans. And we know before World War II that private philanthropy was a major supporter and encourager, if you will, of ocean exploration. Great example is Prince Albert I, who at the end of the 19th century, here you've got a chief of state, Monaco, uh, investing his personal fortune and his time in doing genuine ocean exploration. It was the real deal. It wasn't some gentleman uh, floor. He was out there with his, uh, two of his royal yachts. He had three royal yachts, and he used them shamelessly to do ocean research. One of the first seafloor charts ever made was the result of his efforts and participation. Places in Svalbard named after him and so on. You know, when he spoke about the importance of the ocean, people listened, because here's a, a man in charge of a country, a prince, and he's all in. And he was very effective up to about 1910. And, uh, you know, built that wonderful oceanographic museum in Monaco and also in the University of Paris. There's a, a wonderful building dedicated to marine sciences that he paid for. And so you had that kind of thing. Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in the United States in 1930. That was primarily Rockefeller money that helped mm-hmm. pick it. Scripps Institution, the second probably most famous one in the United States, uh, Woods Hole Scripps. That was the Scripps... Uh, newspaper empire. Apparently, some of the family was living in the San Diego, La Jolla area and thought it'd be nice to establish a marine station. That was 1903, I believe, or 1908, around there, that the first building was put up. Uh, Most of that money was from Scripps. So that is nothing new. We see it today with people like uh, Ray Dalio, uh, Jim Cameron, Paul Allen while he was alive, and others who are putting a lot of money into uh, ocean studies. We do have an increasing group, it's not a huge group, of very wealthy philanthropists who not only want to help support this, they want to participate. It puts a supplement on top of what uh, government sums are willing to pay for. There's many hands reaching for the money, and you've got to make your case. And I don't think we've done that well in the oceanographic community. Coming back to what we were saying a moment ago, a lot of marine scientists, uh, or a lot of scientists, I'm guessing, uh, don't like to get involved with the uh, uh, mere mortals, the unwashed. And mm. I don't mean that pejorative, but I'm too busy, and I haven't got time to educate you on what I do. When I get finished with my work, I'll tell you the import of it and how the information I've developed as a scientist can be used for the benefit of humankind. 
But at the time I'm doing it, I haven't got time to explain to you. While you do that at your peril, NASA does a superb job uh, of explaining what they do to the public. Just go on the NASA website. And yeah. a wonderful website, images taken from the spacecraft. That's all for public education. But it's that public that votes for the members of parliament or the members of Congress who then provide the sums. If they don't understand what we're doing, guess what? We're not going to get those sums. And so we're, we're not getting the kind of budgets we need, and not just in the United States or UK, but throughout the world. The story is not being told. That's why I think the marriage of the uh, explorer and the storyteller is so important. Storytellers provide that kind of translation between the worker and the general public. And if you don't make the case for why what you're doing is important, then guess what? You're not going to get the money. Frankly, we're not selling what we do to the public, and the public not knowing what we do is not very supportive. How can you support something you don't know? I think you're dead right. I think one of the things bugging me at the moment and this may be a subject of many of these podcasts is when you look at the example you gave there of nasa when when they have to explain their science they explain it very well and they're very articulate the lay person has under no illusion that that's what they do they do science they do great work they experiment they explore but then at the same time whenever you switch on the tv and it's something to do with deep sea that science yeah. is lost it just becomes super dark evil weird monsters creatures of the deep and so on and, and a descent in a submarine becomes dangerous, becomes scary, becomes darkness. You know, it just becomes a science fiction story rather than being a, a legitimate story of science and exploration on a par with space exploration. So there's something weird about that transition from other sciences to marine and certainly to deep sea science. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Totally. And I, I, I don't know how to address that. It's, it's one of these really difficult things because... You know, the big TV shows like, you know, Blue Planet 2 and stuff, I mean, it's still doing the same thing. It's still presenting the deep sea like a Victorian freak show. And, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's a cultural thing. It's going to have to change if it's going to get taken seriously. Also, the storytellers, scientists who are also uh, very articulate storytellers, don't have an easy time. Uh, Carl Sagan, who was, you know, in his own right, uh, was a brilliant astronomer. But he was a very, very good communicator. He had a huge success in his TV series explaining space to people. In his own community, they say, well, he ought to be at the workbench, not at the microphone. And, and, and people poop to uh, Jacques Cousteau. He was a popularizer of science. When I was at university back in the uh, late 70s, I can't tell you how many young people would come to my office and talk about how they wanted to be a marine biologist just like Jacques Cousteau. Uh, so many of them couldn't find work because they didn't realize that it was only one of the many disciplines involved in studying the oceans. Uh, but uh, it became a, uh, a definition of oceanographer that you were a biologist. And so we weren't getting marine geologists and physical oceanographers, chemical oceanographers, and the other areas because uh, they weren't mentioned. But Cousteau caught a lot of heat for him being the showman. He was a showman, no question about it. He knew how to popularize uh, exploration of the oceans, ocean science, and and he you know he took some licenses with how he set up his programs. But it was always for uh, for the effect, the fay, as they say, in making it really interesting, entertaining. But also there was a message buried in there. And I knew him. I first met him in '62, and I, I did a couple of little programs on board Calypso, but it was nothing big. It was just alongside a dock and school children in in uh, in Toulon. But uh, 
he had the knack, and he knew how to tell the story, and he did it well. But if you listen to his musings about the importance of the ocean, that's waxing on very philosophical. You know, he was passionate. There was no doubt about that. The science community didn't respect him. They used him and trying to get him to promote their, their programs, but a lot of, there was not a lot of respect there. There's a lot of respect by the, you know, the public uh, at large. We can see that from all the awards and honors he got. But uh, the storytellers, it's a sporty course, especially if you are a scientist trying to explain things uh, to people. That's why Sir David Attenborough is doing such a great job. I mean, he's just born to the calling, wasn't he? And he's, there's not a lot of those people around. We ought to encourage and grow them. We need the storytellers, especially if you're not particularly gifted in that area or don't want to allocate your time. It's terribly time-consuming. It takes a lot of will and, and, and discipline to do both. There's a kind of middle ground there as well because, you know, at, at university when I teach at undergrad yeah. level, there's been quite a few times where students have said to me, you know, they just want to do the field work or the practical work. Uh, they're not, you know, they don't think that standing up and talking about it is really their thing. And, and there was a couple of years ago, I remember I had a student who said, uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm no good at writing. I'm not bothered about writing. I'm just not good at that. And I had to say to her, you, you could have done the best experiment the world has ever seen or made the biggest discovery you know, the world has ever known. But if you can't communicate that to a single other person effectively, then it was it was for nothing. It's not like I don't like writing, therefore I'm not going to write, or I don't like talking in public, so I'm not going to do it. It's a fundamental part of science, is getting that information from your head into somebody else's. That's what science is, right? Uh, and it, Absolutely. It bizarre. bizarre. Right, so anyway, I was trying to think of interesting questions, and this goes back a little bit to what you were saying about the the pressure drop and the LF and it being one big system and one big team and everything else. You know, the the, the story of, of the, the 1960 Challenger deep dive and everything else, everyone knows yourself and hopefully everyone's also heard, heard of, of the car as well. But, you know, it takes a lot of people to do something like that. More than two guys in a submarine. So my question for you is, is there anyone else who was involved in that dive that you felt never quite got the recognition they deserved? Is there someone you would like to sort of mention or sort of anecdotally chat about or you know because we always hear about the, the Walsh and Picard and, and and you know I know there must have been loads of other people involved in that. Yeah uh, that's a, a very thoughtful question. Uh, there are a whole bunch of people who uh, took a chance on us, backed us, uh, even though we're just a small group of 14 people. Uh, we, you know we had an army of uh, supporters that weren't in the same room at all times uh, one person that jumps out is uh, our chief scientist, uh, hey. and actually sort of the in innovator of our program, and that was uh, Dr. Andy Recknitzer. Uh, he was a freshly minted uh, PhD out of Scripps, marine biologist, ended up going to Capri when uh, our Office of Naval Research rented the Trieste for a summer to do sample test dives. Picard's had offered the, the bathyscaphe to the U.S. Navy as a, a deep diving research platform, take yep. the trained mind and the trained eyes inside the ocean at any depth. This is kind of a very novel concept because there are only two of these things in the world at the time. This had been in the uh, mid-50s. The French Navy had one and Picard's had the other, the Trieste. And so what our Navy did, the Office of Naval Research, they actually leased it for a summer and Jacques Picard did a series of, I think, 14, 17 dives at Capri, and what you had on board were a, an assortment of U.S. 
marine scientist. You had an acoustics guy, biologist, a geologist, and so on. The question then was, all right, you have tested this thing, you've used it. How does it look through the lens of your particular discipline? Could you use a platform like this? Would this be useful in your work? Hmm. And so at the end of that summer series in Capri, the group agreed, yes, this, uh, this has promise as a new type of scientific platform, allow us to do things we could never do before. And Andy Recknitzer was one of those scientists. And so he made one of the early dives at Capri. He was employed by the U.S. Navy at the time at the Navy Electronics Laboratory in San Diego, California. And so he went back to the Navy lab in San Diego and said, you know, this is an amazing device. We've got deep water offshore here in San Diego, and so it ought to come here. And lo and behold, the Navy agreed. Andy was behind all of that. He set up the program, got the facility pretty much in hand by the time I joined the program in January of, of 1959. So Andy is undervalued and underappreciated and not mentioned in the accounts like he should be. He was the guy really behind the entire program. I'm going to have to look him up now. Yeah, please do. Amazing guy. He, he was my mentor, really. I mean, when I came into the program, it was up and running. I joined the program in January 59. In January 60, I'm on the bottom of the ocean in the deepest place. Uh, even though I was a submarine officer, you know, I've been underwater a lot. The submarines I was serving on could go all the way to 300 feet. So to go from 300 feet to 35,800 feet in, uh, in 14 months was an awesome experience. In the late 50s, uh, early 50s, I should say, he started using scuba. He was one of the first ocean scientists to go inside the ocean and make direct observations. So he was one of the very first. For two or $300, you could kit out a human with all the stuff you needed, and that became your first, if you will, man submersible yourself. And when he got a sample dive at Capri in the bathyscaphe to uh, 1,000 meters, that was a game changer for him, and he became a convert. He was supposed to make the deep dive. I wasn't supposed to go. Uh, well, I was supposed to be the pilot, and he was going to be the scientist, but uh, what happened was we did realize that Jacques Picard had a contract with the Office of Naval Research that he would make all uh, such dives, and that was only revealed to us just before we were to make the deep dive, so Andy had to drop out. I volunteered to drop out in favor of Andy because he's much better qualified than I was, to say the least. He was a commander in the Naval Reserve. So he could have been put on active duty, put on a uniform, and you'd have a naval officer on board and a scientist. But the powers that be wouldn't go along with that. So I just kind of backed into it. Wow, that's brilliant. What a fascinating story. So along those lines, I've got one very last question for you. We'd like to leave on a question that Tom and I like to ask people when we're at sea. One of two questions are the best questions to ask to get to know somebody. This other second question we can't ask because it's uh, it's not appropriate. But first question is, what's the best party you've ever been to? The best party? Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, boy. The best parties are when you're with your mates. In the submarine service, which is close-knit, elite group, you're a very small group. You don't really talk much about what you're doing because what you're doing is so hazardous. You really don't want people to know not inherently hazardous, but where you operate can be very hazardous. You don't want people to know what you were doing, where you were going. We just disappear for a couple of months at a time. We couldn't tell our families or anything where we were going or what we were doing. And to this day, uh, it's still a lot of it remains highly classified. And so we were welded together. And then also inside a submarine, there's no room to uh, differentiate people by rank. It's more like a large family uh, between the officers and the enlisted. 
mutual respect because there was no distance between you, like in a more hierarchical organization. We, we didn't have any of that. It was a different feeling and a lot of collegial respect and, and affection for your people. So when we had submarine parties, we played hard and we worked hard. So those were fun because we get together with people that you know have similar experience, similar stresses in their lives. We understood what it is you do. You understand what I do. It made a, a, a very nice equation, uh, a, a occasion, I should say, of almost equals. And that doesn't sound good. I know coming from a military person, the officers are a little more equal than the rest. But the fact is that there wasn't a lot of that in submarines. If you didn't fit in, then uh, you could either quit on your own without penalty or you could get fired. It was one of the few military organizations that if somebody didn't fit in uh, at the command level, uh, you know, the captain of the ship, uh, you could just fire them. They get redeployed in submarine service. Everybody was there as a volunteer carefully selected. You go through psychological screening and submarine school. And there's a special group of people. And that's why those parties were especially great. Some of our best ones have been port calls in some random place after some expedition or after some significant dive or after some great discovery with a small band of thieves. That yep. And interesting today, we, we, we uh, spoke to somebody else. What was, what was the best party you've ever been to? And they said it was uh, on Capri which is exactly where you've just been talking about. And that particular party was yeah. a, a conference they were at where they, he got talking to somebody else. And that conversation yeah. led to 20 years of shallow water fish research moving into deep sea research. And so there you go. Well, that that's uh, very apt because you mentioned Capri. That's kind of what got me dedicated to coming into the world of oceanography. I said, these guys go to neat places and do good works. <laughs> You know, I was already a lifetime sailor. I was a career naval officer. I said, I want to be an oceanographer. And I had a nice apprenticeship in the Trieste because every dive I made, I had usually have a different scientist. I'd have, you know, next week a geologist, the week before I had a biologist. And just two of you in the, in the Bathurst Gap, the Trieste. Yeah. So you had to understand what he wanted to do, how to integrate instrumentation into the sub, test it, make sure it's reliable. It took a lot of work just to make one dive, and you want to make it a useful dive. You don't have something crap out in the middle of the dive uh, that you could have prevented uh, on shore. As they say in automobile racing, you don't win on the track, you win in the shop. That yeah. is how well you're prepared, your machine is prepared. So uh, that was an apprenticeship for me because I had to learn their language, what's important. And also we had an open mic. Scientists looking out the window, uh, a lot of them kind of trip out. And uh, I'll give you an example. Carl Hubbs, one of the great ichthyologists in history, uh, he could name everything. But I got him uh, down, and he looked out the window. He said, well, Professor Hubbs, what do you see? He said, fish. I kind of figured that. And I, just, <laughs> I said, well, what kind? Because I had the open mic. I'm, I'm coaching him to talk to the tape recorder. And he said, lots of fish. I said, well, you got more for me? And, and so that's kind of coaching we did, uh, I did as the pilot. So it was an apprenticeship. I, I learned the words, uh, something about what these people do, and a variety of them, many disciplines. But I didn't have the formal book training. So at one point in my career, I got the Navy to give me the time off to go back to university and get a proper graduate-level education. I wanted to study acoustics because, you know, internal waves are kind of important in operating submarines because it changes the quality of sound in the sea. Whereas you could get very close to somebody, a surface ship, let's say, and certain conditions, water conditions and other conditions, they could hear you from half an ocean away. And so I wanted to study hydrodynamics of the ocean in graduate school because I figured that'd make me a better 
uh, submarine driver because my next job after graduate school was command of a submarine. And the oceanographer of the Navy came down to uh, Texas A&M, where I was in school, and said that he had been to a very interesting meeting with NASA, and NASA wanted to know what could you tell about the world ocean from Earth-orbiting platforms. And I said, well, that's certainly very interesting, Admiral. I'll make sure I keep up with the literature and find out how you do that. I think I misquoted Rayleigh, who said, if you can't touch it, you can't measure it. I think I made that up. I'm not sure. But anyway, I said it to the Admiral. And he said, well, Commander Walsh, I want you to uh, go down to NASA Houston and find out what they're doing. I said, well, I'd, I'd like that. I'll go down and I'll write your report. He said, no, I want you to be in it. And I said, say what? He said, I want you to get into that program. I said, I'm not wearing wings, Admiral. I'm wearing submarine dolphins, and I'm interested in underwater acoustics. He said, Commander, I don't think you hear what I'm saying. And I said, yes, sir, Admiral. I can hear loud and clear now, Admiral. And so for three and a half years, I rode around the back of NASA airplanes as much as I did on research ships and became, I think, one of the first half dozen or so oceanographers in the United States to work in remote sensing oceanography, and this is the mid-1960s. So I thought, well, this is pretty neat. Wouldn't it be great to get out there and look back at the ocean as one total entity? So that's why I went on for my doctorate, so I could become an astronaut. But my eyes weren't good enough to be in, in the Apollo program because everybody had to be a rated military aviator, and I couldn't qualify for uh, flight training. So I gave up on that. And then years later, I found out that the Navy was going to nominate me for the first oceanographer in the shuttle program. Sadly, I've been retired for a while, and I was at a university, so uh, that door slammed shut behind me. I don't know where I'm going with all of this. I don't know. It's fascinating (laughs) just listening to it. I drank at the well of many different areas of ocean activities, bottom of the ocean, submarine service, working on surface ships uh, with the Mir subs and and then uh, even the space program. Well, and of course, uh, the underlying theme of uh, working in the Arctic, uh, polar regions a lot. I've been working actually in the polar regions longer than I had worked uh, under sea. My first Arctic trip was 70 years ago, and my first Antarctic trip was about 55 years ago. I've gone about 80 polar expeditions, and I've got the Walsh Spur named after me in the Antarctic. So, I, I, you know, I wasn't just visiting, I was doing But when we're talking about stuff like we're talking about today, uh, I don't usually bring this up because it doesn't relate to uh, studying the ocean. Honestly, this has been one of the most fascinating things, just sitting and listening to all this. is incredible. Have you ever written all this down? I'm writing uh, what I call an unauthorized autobiography. It's called Sea Stories, and it's S-E-E, Sea Stories, Conversations with Myself. I, I call it a bathroom book because most of them are 800 or 1,000 words. So you're sitting on the thunder mug, just read one of these things, you know, have done with it. You haven't lost the thread of the, the storyline. I don't know how to do a conventional book. So I'm, I'm writing up these little anecdotes. One of your countrymen, Arthur C. Clarke, the science writer, well, yep. he was my dive buddy in Salon. Because, <laughs> and nobody believed it except I have a picture of Arthur and myself in our kit. So, But he gave me a tour of the heavens. We were in Trincomalee. He brought along his Celestron telescope, and because we were in the big naval base there at Trincomalee, which was where Mountbatten had his headquarters during World War II. But when the Senegalese Navy had it, they had two uh, 40-foot Vosper patrol boats and, and a couple of dogs. So at 4 o'clock every day, they'd lock the gate and turn off the lights. And so we were there in the dark, so we couldn't see anything. So he brought along this telescope, and we'd set it up outside in pure darkness. He'd give me a tour of the heavens. I thought that was a pretty good guide. Wow. 
So it's experiences like that, lots and lots of them. And uh, how I helped the Shah of Iran uh, abdicate, that's another good one. You know, I think I did. I'm not sure. I can't believe you uh, did. It's amazing. You heard it here first. Don Walsh is writing his unauthorized autobiography, which I think is going to be an absolutely amazing read. Will be the audiobook. Yeah. That's a heavy burden for me. If I'd known that, uh, I probably would have gotten tongue-tied and stage fright. <laughs> I think we're going to have to bring in Don as, a, as the third on this, Tom. How are we going to maintain stories like that? I don't know. I live up to that. I'm going to have to have a think about this. I think if you're up for it, Tom, why not give, give Don a regular sector on this podcast? I think we've barely tapped the surface of Don's stories. I've got about 30 of them done so far. You start doing one, and it, all of a sudden, up from memory somewhere comes uh, one that you've forgotten about. Well, what's more important, Alan, in all of this is the journey, not the destination, because we all know what that is. And at age of 88, I can see the off-ramp from here. But uh, as having a good run, I think the worst sin, although it's not in the list of the cardinal sins, is boredom. I agree. And I define, by the way, we talked about exploration earlier, I've defined it for years as curiosity acted upon. I was glad to have John Glenn even repeat that, and Jim Cameron uses it a lot. But Mm. we're all curious about things we see, and that lasts for about eight microseconds. Then we go on to something else. You say, well, I wonder how that works. Why is that? Did you notice this? And you don't act on it. But if you act on it, then you're an explorer. A baby in its mother's arms is exploring. It's looking all around its new world. And when it becomes mobile, it's running around the restaurant, picking the gum off the bottom of the table. It's in the mid-teen years when the hormones and peer pressure and everything, it kind of beats it out of you. And, and not that many of us maintain it into adulthood. And that's, that's sad. So um, exploration, curiosity, acted upon. If you act upon something that interests you, that you're curious about, now you're an explorer. I was trying to explain this to somebody recently, and I think I said to them that whilst I am technically a scientist, I just use science as an excuse to go and have adventures. <laughs> Whether we find out anything or not doesn't really matter, but we have great fun trying. In submarines, uh, we used to have a saying, if you're not having fun, you're doing something wrong. And I'm not talking about giggles, you know, as much as just enjoying what you're doing, a reason to get up every day and do good works. Brilliant. Them's my thoughts. (laughs) Thanks very much, Don. That was absolutely magic. It was my pleasure, and good luck to both of you, and uh, I hope that it uh, meets your expectations. Oh, very well. All right, so it's interesting to hear what Don was saying about science communication. I didn't know that Cousteau got a better grief off other scientists. That's, that's, I thought that was quite interesting, but I can kind of see why, because there is a sort of hardcore science community that, that don't necessarily engage with outreach, and then there's a, this opposite end with this people who engage in a lot of outreach that don't necessarily do a lot of science, but they're both as valuable. I think I was trying to say that during that interview was, you know, you can be the best science in the world, but if you can't communicate it to someone else, it doesn't mean anything. And But then at the same time, it's getting that fine line between not coming across as being arrogant know-all and not coming across as dumbing it down. And I think especially now in this particular culture where the word scientists gets punted around on TV all the time, it's very dangerous because you don't want to close the doors and go, I'm just going to get on with whatever I do. You've got to have some level of transparency with the public. But then also, it still needs to be serious work. So I think what Don was getting at was that sort of fine line. Cousteau was obviously an exception because he was you know, a megastar. And I guess some people took a bit of grief over that. 
But, you know, we've had grief over this stuff as well, Tom. We'll probably get grief over this episode for even talking about it. The worst critics in the world are other scientists. We can be pretty harsh to our own. Uh, but relaying your science and relaying it not just to other people in a similar area or people who commissioned a report or something like that, but, but relaying it to everyone. And again, as Alan touched on there, you know, the, this label of scientist, like it's a separate culture, like it's a separate group of people. I'd love to see that dissolve, really. This is us. This is collective humanity. It's like scientists have discovered like, no, we, all of us, all of us have discovered this. And this is something new that we all know now. And we can all sort of take a part in that. We do need to make a big effort to, to communicate that to people. And I, but I think that's a totally separate skill set. It's, it's one I really admire, one I've tried to, to nurture. But, you know, anyone who's been lectured at university will know you can be lectured by someone who's absolutely the top of their field. But teaching and presenting is quite a different skill set. And you can be taught by someone you really admire. And it's just, oh, this is, this is a slog. Don's good, though. Don's good. I could listen to Don all night. He just just keeps going, dropping in like, oh yeah, I was just down the beach with Arthur C. Clarke or, you know, just hanging out with Gusteau for a bit. And oh yeah, I tried to join NASA and the Apollo program, but you know, I, I figured I'd just go to the deepest place in the world instead. <laughs> and didn't he just offhandedly mention an area of the Antarctic named after him? Oh yeah, of course, you know, I'm sure there's a few things named after him. He's such a modest man. It's brilliant. That's why it's so much fun to talk to him. I think the real beauty in, in listening to Don talk he is quite inspiring, but he's inspiring in a way that because he talks to you as if you're just chatting in a bar. You know, as I said at the start, he has no ego whatsoever. He's just a guy just talking away. The fact he's done amazing things, he just hasn't ever let it go to his head. And I've been there where other people have kind of puffed their chests out a little bit and, and said things in his company, and he's just like, boom. One cheeky little one-liner, and it's just like, yeah, there we go. That's why he's so good. It doesn't take himself too seriously, and I think that's, that's the beauty of good science communication, where you don't take yourself too seriously. You're not lecturing, you're just explaining in an enjoyable format. Yeah, that's a fine line, actually, and I think that's the right attitude to have. There's not a single person who doesn't know things you don't know and hasn't had experiences you haven't had. It should never come across as condescending. We really make pains not to be on this, and I hope we never come across that way, but we've gone down a very niche path and we've seen and experienced some things that we think are incredible. We'd really like everyone to, to understand and appreciate and have an accurate view of. Hopefully that comes across as sort of an exciting sharing experience and, and something we're all in together. Because again, these scientists have done this and no, we've, we've all done it. You can share that victory wherever you are. It, it's something that our collective humanity has achieved. But people do share that collective if it's in space. Yes. I think. There are, so there's some things to do, but then when it comes to other things like certainly deep sea, there isn't that same collective. It's like other people have done this. Whereas in space, it was like it was, a, it was all about finally left the planet type of thing. I keep coming back to the space analogy thing. And it is really interesting. There's a lot to be learned from the way they deal with it to the way we deal with it, because it just seems to work. And people get behind it. I mean, even even this week, there's another Mars rover going on, on its way. And then they had someone on TV the other day who just explained it. And actually, the science part of it, away from the big clickable headline, was actually really fascinating. There's a little drone thing on there and stuff like that. It was, you know, engineering-wise, it was brilliant. And someone just came on TV and just articulated everything they're doing and didn't dumb it down, explained exactly what they were doing. And it was absolutely fascinating. As you say, it's a thing that everybody is behind. I don't think anyone's ever sort of like, I wish they would stop putting things in space. <laughs> I've got a good story about science communication. Do you want to hear it? Go on. It's me and this guy called Dan. I know quite a few Dan's, so you just have to try and guess which Dan we're talking about. But me and this guy called Dan, we did a, a job with an ROV off San Diego. We had a couple of days off at the end, so we thought we'd make a run for the Mexican border. Went into this place and there was a big horseshoe bar. In the back there was a pool table. I had to give him a pool and it turned out that there was a winner stays on rule. And I beat Dan, because he's rubbish. Dan went back to the bar. This guy came up and says, right, it's me and you. 
and uh, we played, and I beat him. I don't know how, because I'm not a very good pool player at all. And this other like, guy came up and says, all right, it's my shot now. And for reasons I'll never understand, I beat him as well. I'm like, oh, God, this is getting out of control now. You know, I'm getting the people starting to talk about this mad Scottish guy who's in this bar in Mexico beating everybody at pool. And eventually the guy comes along and puts money down on the table. I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to have to go. I'm going to have to go. And I'm looking back at the bar to try and catch Dan's eye to give him the nod. And he's there and he's waving his arms around. Oh, no, what's happening up there? And as I go up, there's all these the most badass guys you've ever seen. They're all absolutely captivated. And Dan's there going on about... Yeah, you know, the deep sea is a food-deprived area and all this phytodetritus comes down <laughs> and all these sea cucumbers hoover up and they're all sitting there going, really, is that a thing? And he goes, yeah, yeah. And he goes, there's fish there. Yeah, there's fish there. Like He's giving this whole lecture on deep sea biology to some of these enormous great big Mexican gunslinger guys. Beautiful. It was absolutely beautiful. Science communication at its best. I can remember getting a, like a full-day tattoo session. You know, you get to know your tattoos quite well. There's a lot of time talking. Walking in, awkward introductions, this is what we want, blah, blah, blah. As we were leaving, it was... What? So whales came onto the land and they were like dog things and then they went back into the sea and I was like, yeah, and they lost their back legs. It's mad. <laughs> <laughs> if you're looking at any of those sort of infographics of the deepest of everything, Don is quite often the little face you'll see at the bottom. And to be honest, those things tend to focus on where things disappear, moving from the surface, the deep is this, the deep is that, the deep is whale, the deep is fish. It's all about loss as you go deeper. Do you agree with that, Alan? No, I, I know the ones you mean. You, you, there's been various infographics and illustrations and scrolling apps that trying to, well, I think what they're trying to do, they're trying to illustrate how deep the ocean is. And it's the maximum depth of, of our most familiar species that gives us some sort of context to try and show how unbelievably deep and remote it is. And this is where you also get the, the lonely dawn at the bottom of Challenger Deep, sitting there in his little bathy scaff. But it's, 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 again, it's a little bit misleading because the deeper you go, the more there's a tendency to just ignore deep sea animals, which is bizarre because we're, we're, we're using the deepest diving shallow water animals to illustrate how deep it is. But if you add in the deepest occurrence of the deep sea animals, it doesn't look that weird anymore. It's a changeover. It's not a loss of things. I mean, it technically is, but it's not a loss in a vacuum. There are things that start appearing as you go deeper. Yeah, you never get one that says the shallowest. <laughs> you know, the shallowest deep sea animal. That would be interesting to do that. But how do we look into this? Do you want me to tell you what I found, Tom? I would love a story. Would you like a story? Yeah. I'm getting comfy. Go on. Right. So I'm not sure how much this is true. Oh, well, that's a good lead in. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Some of, some of it's uh, from genuine scientific sources. Some of them are a little bit shady because I couldn't quite find where some of these statements are set. But it looks a bit right. So I looked at them into the air-breathing animal bit to see where the deepest records are for some of these things. And it turns out the deepest diving flying bird is a thick-billed murr, and it can only go 150 metres, which actually is quite impressive for a, for a bird. There is some record on there saying it can go 220 metres. The deepest flightless bird is the emperor penguin. Guess how deep an emperor penguin has been seen? Go on, Tom. So that, the first one you gave was the flighted bird. Yep, this is the flightless. Right. Oh... 200. 564. What? Yes. No. Okay, the, the, the one that got me actually was, I found this really surprising, is what depth is the deepest leatherback turtle being found? It's the deepest reptile. Oh. Oh, come on, it's 1,280 metres. What? Yeah. That's, well, that's far deeper than I expected. Yeah, deepest seal was in tagged elephant seal. It went to 1,529. Dolphins are rubbish. They don't even get a look in, really. 300 metres, maybe. 
The wheels are weird though, because you get these Arctic wheels, right? The, the narwhal and so on, they can go to 1700 and a bit. Sperm wheels can get to about 1100 meters. The Cuvier's beaked wheel is the one that's got rather an impressive one. It's nearly 3000 meters. And we, we had a little look into that one as well, didn't we, for a, a paper we were doing about there was, yeah. there was an interesting paper on what their skull could actually cope with. It was more of an engineering paper than a, yeah. the biology paper. And what did they reckon it went to? They thought it was possible for it to go to 5,000. But again, they were just looking at the skull. Yeah, before its skull caved in. <laughs> I, would, I would maybe go 4,999. Yeah, I stop a bit short of that. As soon as I'm getting yeah. close to my skull caving in, I tend to back off. I'm quite a coward. <laughs> anyway, so of all these charismatic ones, right, they're, they're basically all in the top 27%. And they're all in the top 16% if you take out the, the Cuvier's beaked whale. So, and they, most of these are air breathing, right? So if you go into the more charismatic ones, which are the true marine animals, let's say sharks, you've got your chondrichthys, right? Your sharks, rays and chimeras. For what I can work out, the great white shark has been tagged to 1,000 metres, which, again, I was quite surprised by that. The deepest shark I've ever seen was the Portuguese dogfish, and that was about 3,700 metres. I was on that cruise, I remember that day. Was it a trap or was it video? It was video. It came. It was with using the ISIS ROV. It came oh, cool. up and swam around the elevator, and off it went. And it was around the time where Monty from episode one was just published his paper on the deeper shark, and everyone's like, "Uh, that's a wee bit deeper." <laughs> In fairness, he held it held true. But yeah, it, it is yes. funny that like within months of him making this bold statement, it's like, "Hi." Yeah, exactly. So yeah, so the chimera is the official deepest chimera is two thousand nine hundred nine. But I I reckon we've seen that deeper, not much deeper, right enough. And the deepest ray is Bigelow's ray, and it's been seen at 4,156. When you get into the jawless fishes, you have hagfish and lampreys. They're, they're not very particularly deep. Lampreys don't get a look in. They're up there with the dolphins. Uh, hagfish are about 1,800 metres. So even those marine ones, taking away the air-breathing component, you're still on the shallowest 40%. And even then, it's probably less, because I'm, I'm thinking that ray record's maybe a little bit spurious. But there you go. So once you, when you look at these infographics, quite often when you get deeper than that, you normally see our little fish at 8,000 metres saying deepest fish, and then there's a, probably an angler fish in there somewhere or whatever it is. But actually, it gets way more interesting, right? So let's think about what other animals there are in the sea. There's loads of other stuff, right? There's brittle stars, there's squid, there's octopus, there's all sorts of different worms, there's all sorts of different sponges and corals and all these different things that don't get a look in. I guess it's partly because they're not maybe so charismatic, but they also all have maximum depth. So at this point, I wish we had Top of the Pops soundtrack. This would be quite interesting to do it to that. But I'm scared to use any music. I still don't know quite what the rules are with podcasting. Some people yeah. seem to just get away with it, but I'm frightened. Depends if anyone cares or not. Anyway, so if you start, let's go down deeper than that, right? Let's start at 4,000 metres. Abyssal Plains. In the Abyssal Plains, you've got the deepest calcareous sponges and the deepest squid, which is the big fin squid at 4,735 metres. In the upper, let's say, we're already at the upper Hadle zone, right? So we've just missed, what, 65% of the planet? So we're now down to the deep end. You know, the bit that is supposed to give you the impression that there's nothing there, the bit that scrolls on and on and on into eternal darkness until a lonely dawn is seen at the bottom. But really, in the upper Hadle zone, we've got the, the deepest monoplacophora, which is a really weird little mollusk thing. It's at 6354 metres. Then we have the mites, they go at 6850 metres. And then we have our favourite little Dumbo octopus, which is something we did a few months ago. It's at 6957 metres. And there's also the deepest larvations as well, which are about 7000 metres as well. So when you go into the 7000 metre mark, we have peanut worms down at 7298 metres. Urchins, of all things, that's a fairly well known group of animals, but they actually go down to 7340 metres. Then you've got sea spiders, the Pycnogonids, or the Pantopoda, whatever you want to call them, 7,370. 
Scaphopods, tusk shells, 7,657. Then you've got the polyplacophora, which again are these strange little mollusks. They're down to 7,657. And then you've got the decapods. Decapods I find really difficult. Decapods, of course, are crabs, lobsters, shrimp and prawns. The deepest of all the decapods is, is a prawn that we found off Japan at 7,703 metres. But I was trying to split that down into like the deepest crab and stuff like that, but I couldn't find that. I'd imagine the deepest crab's probably a squat lobster or something at 5,000. But anyway, so decapods go down to nearly 8,000. And then the barnacles, who would have thought? There you go, barnacles, the chiripeds, they are down to 7,880 metres. So then, and bearing in mind, trying to picture this as you're scrolling down through the empty void to give the impression that nothing lives in the deep sea. 8,000 metres, there are the deepest sea stars, 8,042. Deepest commissions at 8,042. The deepest fish, of course, we know that one. Deepest Ascidians, the sea squirts, 8430. We've got glass sponges, we've got brittle stars, we've got sea fans, sea whips, arrow worms. The deepest jellyfish is currently 8,700 metres. We have mycids, which are crustaceans. We have bryozoa, which is essentially little mossy things, down to 8,830 metres. And it doesn't stop there. And the 9,000 metre mark, we've then got the deepest tenaids, which are little crustaceans. We have deepest flatworms, we have the deepest ostracod, we have the deepest coralline sponge down at 9,990. So it's not sound in that void of life so far, is it? It's void of maybe familiar life. I don't know. I would say prawns and, and sea stars and brittle stars and yeah. things like that are fairly common, right? Sea spiders, maybe? I don't know. Anyway, so nipping over the line, crossing that all wonderful 10,000 metre line, we've got copepods. Who would have thought? Copepods at 10,000 metres. Spoonworms. Okay, fair enough. Spoonworms are a bit weird. But once you get beyond that, everything else flourishes, right? So you've got polychaetes, your bristle worms. You've got gastropods, your snails, your bivalves, the clams and other shelly things. Uh, isopods, anemones, foraminifera, the monothalamia. Go and Google that, it's very, very complicated. Sea cucumbers and, of course, amphipods. These are all present down to 10,925 metres at the deepest point. So, by my reckoning, at that bottom 6541 metres, there's actually a depth record every 160 metres. So the deepest point in the ocean is probably busier than the top end of the ocean in terms of deepest records. But they never really get a look in. So, with that in mind, there's something else. And I think this fits nicely into today's programme, given who our guest is. And we tie that back to the Mariana Trench, because something else came up a while back as well. So, George W. Bush, before he left office, made the Mariana Trench a marine national monument. And about 82% of that national monument is the Mariana Trench. And it's weird, because when you read the presidential proclamation, it's one of the reasons for it being, or being, being granted protection status, is because it keeps using this phrase, virtually unknown characteristics which is quite interesting. And it comes back to that whole thing about this big black void of falling through space where there's nothing in the deepest 5,000 metres of sea. Just the Mariana Trench alone is actually way more than you think. So I've compiled here a list of things that we've found from baity cameras, things that we found from baity traps, things that the Russians found from trawling and various other bits and pieces, right? So everything I'm about to read out is all from greater than 6,000 metres in the Mariana Trench. So for baity cameras, we found... 15 species of fish belonging to seven families, of which there were five species of macruids, two species of leparids, four species of cuscule, one species of synaphobranchid, which are your eels, one species of tripod fish, and one species of eel pout. There's also a halosaur in there somewhere as well. From the invertebrates, there are at least four species of decapods, two species of amphipod, one species of polychaete, two mycids, a couple of urchins, a massive siphonophore. And the baited traps, we picked up 22 species belonging to 11 families of four superfamilies that comprised a whole number of amphipods that I'm not even going to dare try and read out. But from the Russian troll data, there were one species of Hexasterophora, 
They had demo sponges, they had anthozoa, they had polychaetes, they had more urchins, they had brittle stars, they had sea stars, they had more holotherians, they had gastropods, they had bivalves, ostracods, mycids, chameleons, five gold rings, I don't know, tenades, more isopods, more amphipods, and a stolidobranchia, and I have absolutely no idea what that last thing is, but we also found at least 31 potentially chemosynthetic bacterial mats as well. So my point here is basically in the Mariana Trench there are fish, prawns, shrimp, bristleworms, boomworms, jellies, hopper, sponges, anemones, brittle stars, sea stars, sea cucumbers, sea snails, clams, sea squirts and a whole bunch of other stuff that don't have common names. Therefore, I have to take issue with this virtually unknown characteristics. I think there's actually way more down there than we, we think, but it comes back to things we discuss quite a lot between you and I, Tom, about how I think people like prefer the idea that there's nothing there. Mm. You know, I think it ruins the magic when you say, actually, there's loads of stuff in the Mariana Trench, and it's very familiar stuff that you find pretty much everywhere. And the weird habitat is mostly mud. And, and you know, recently when we've been showing a lot of people videos of what the bottom of the Mariana Trench looks like, there's a sort of weird dichotomy going on in their heads and that this is really cool I get to see the bottom of the Mariana Trench and then I'm really disappointed because it's just mud and rocks <laughs> and you're like well what did you expect it to be? The fact is it could have been anything that that's that was the allure of the unknown that we touched on last time yeah but again you can make the analogy with Everest that you know if, if you hadn't if no one had been the top of Everest you could pretty much work out for yourself that it's probably going to be a combination of snow and rock some ice in there too and you know, it's still cool to see it, and it's still worthy of going there. It's just that it's that magic of it's 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 just another place. It's just very far away from us. It's interesting that that was used in order to protect it when it's probably one of the best studied deep sites. Yeah, there's a weird paradox in the Mariana Trench because everyone says we know nothing about it, and Challenger Deep's is ultimate place, but actually Challenger Deep's been studied way more than any other part of the hail zone, at the expense of the rest of the trench, mind you. Yes. Absolutely. It's, it's never given context. It's never linked back to the surrounding environment. It has now, Tom, because I've just come back from there. I've just spent five weeks on the Mariana Trench. It's been great. And it's, to be honest, it's, it's much of the same all the way around the corner. <laughs> but we know now. But we know it, We know now it's much the same as it's around the corner. But uh, yeah. So, you know, it, it would be nice, it would be really interesting to put together the same infographic that gets punted around a lot about the deepest things and all these things as you go down through the water column, but do an actually totally factually correct one. But again, I don't know, because that might ruin the magic. Yeah, we don't want to be sort of killjoys, but I, I feel like it's all about seeing the deep sea as a loss of a, that extreme environment causing animals we're familiar with to reach their limit and, and fail to go further. And it builds up this mystique of, well, you can't go there because look, all these animals are, are dying off. They're being repelled. They can't go any further. And it... I mean, the pressure is immense. It's 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 crazy to overcome, but it feels like a race. It's a race, right? It's an evolutionary race downwards, and and there, there are winners and losers, and there's very very few winners. And we found getting getting to grips with the ecology that once you once you break the force field, once you are physiologically capable of going that deep, you have a really good time. The the trenches. The reason it's muddy at the bottom is it's funneling all of that material that's raining down from the surface. So things are not food starved when they're down there. Most of the deep sea is food starved, but there's plenty to eat down there. And we see things like the, the snailfish and you'll, you'll look at the, the abyssal fishes and you'll know that, oh, that's about 40 years old and it goes six months at a time without feeding. Uh, and its life is kind of tough and maybe it only reproduces once and then it dies. And then you go a little bit deeper and these snailfish have gone deeper than all their predators. They don't appear to have any predators down there. There's loads of them. They're actually fat not starving at all. Uh, and then looking at their reproduction, it seems that they're, they're constantly 
reproducing. So they're, they're not semel parasites. They don't breed once and then they die. They are constantly spawning. So if anything, the very bottom is an orgy with plenty of food. So it's a it's a very good party. Last days of Rome stuff. <laughs> no, you can see it in the Holothurians, the sea cucumbers. Certainly in South Sandwich, just before the landers land on the bottom, you can see hundreds of these things. These are like little sea cucumbers or sea pigs. Just, you know, they don't munch through sediment. It doesn't have a huge organic loading, right? That's what they do. They, they follow the food. They're like cows grazing in a field, and there are hundreds and hundreds of them. And a few years back, there was a Japanese guy who came out with these beautiful videos of sea lily meadows at 9,500 metres up Japan somewhere. And there were hundreds of them, all just perched on the rock. They look like flowers, you know, and they're, they're basically filtering organic matter out, out of the, the, the bottom water. So to sustain a whole meadow of sea lilies or a whole, for want of a better word, herds of sea pigs at the bottom of the trenches, there has to be loads of food down there. So again, it's one of these things that you can't extrapolate elements of ecology and biology from the wider deep sea all the way to the bottom because things flip, things change quite abruptly when you get close to the bottom. Contributing to this episode's Tales from the High Sea, uh, we have Johanna Weston, who, despite still finishing off her PhD, has, I think it's three new species and even a new genus under her belt, so (laughs) incredibly productive. Uh, rising star in uh, taxonomy. You had a rite of passage as a sailor. You crossed the equator for the first time on a vessel. I, I did cross the equator for the first time. Didn't even realize it was a thing. It was a big historical learning for me. And it differs a little bit sort of vessel to vessel, like each, each one has its own tradition. So what was your experience of, uh, of an equator crossing? Yeah, it sounds a little bit like joining a fraternity at a university where it can be different levels of hazing um, and hearing some of the older people's stories of their first crossing made it a little bit scary that some people had some like very intense experiences. We're going from Mariana Trench down to Tonga Trench and I think that's about like two and a half, three weeks long and so the equator crossing was right in the middle. And it seems like when you're just on transit, every day feels a little bit like Groundhog Day. So this was a really nice excuse for everyone to get fancy dress and have something that the whole crew's involved with. And so everyone seemed to have a role. And then there was us three like lowly victims. And so everyone took it very seriously. It was really impressive, like what people came up with um, and the costumes they came up with. There's kind of a speech to it as well, isn't there? That you sort of all gathered and there's like a prayer to Poseidon. Oh, yeah. Welcome Poseidon. you and allow you to... It, it, it really is like a fraternity of sailors. Yeah, so Poseidon and his wife come. There's like a ranking of who gets to play Poseidon and who gets to play Poseidon's wife. There's like a butcher and a maps person... I think you had more characters than mine. I, 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 it, it totally varies with like different uh, different crews. You're right. It's a it's a hazing. This was luckily a very loving hazing. Um, so we we're at the bow of the boat. It's very hot that day. As this prayer is being read out by Poseidon and his wife, we're like having to kneel, and then we get necklaces which were out of mackerel, which I had been working with like baiting the landers for a while so the smell of mackerel at my face didn't actually bother me and I thought it was like kind of cute. It's meant to be a gross out but you you can't gross out a biologist not after that long. Yeah 
luckily I was told kind of ahead of time what would happen just so that, you know, didn't put on clothes that you really cared about. <laughs> that was easily thrown away. And then there's one part where they like have to cut off your hair. Us two scientists, they just cut off a little bit of lock, but there was a crew member who, it was his first time crossing. So he got the full head shave. I was happy that I didn't get a full head shave. That would have been horrible. Then we had all the food waste was then all dumped on us. So like all the coffee grounds and lettuce and banana peels for like the last two and a half weeks or whatever that was dumped on top of us. And that was probably the grossest part. I thought it was a very loving exercise. and It was very cool to be part of. The best part, though, is that you get like a certificate and a name. And so it's this very official looking certificate signed by the captain. And you get a name designated to you. So mine was Mongolian Battle Hamster, <laughs> which I think speaks to my size. And things aren't always made for like shorter people. So like the bench spaces are all very high and I have no problem like crawling on top of the bench to get to what I need. I, I've seen you scrabble some shelves. Oh, and, oh, and another thing with the, with the traditions, you're allowed then in the traditional sailor tattoos to have a um, sea turtle. But then I, there's like tattoos for the number of miles that you've crossed and like if you've circumvented the globe yeah. and if you've been to different poles and like tattoos for everything. No idea there was this rich culture and legend and lore associated with it yeah you you were on this state-of-the-art cutting-edge science cruise and then all of a sudden you were confronted with some old maritime tradition <laughs> it was very loving good good I'm, I'm glad it didn't feel too intense yeah what was your crossing like i've been threatened with the hair as well but i had the i had the lovely long golden locks back then and i, mm. I said you know if it's part of the tradition you know you can you can try but i will fight you we were captured in a net in our cabins or whenever we happened to be, we were dragged out onto the deck. We were painted in the ship's colors and actually using the paint for the vessel. So it's, wow. it's, it's like anti-barnacle paint. It's probably really bad for you. Yeah, uh, that's so, not gonna come off pretty easy. No, it, it remained for a while, but no barnacles. So well, I was much quicker through the water. Yeah. So yeah, we're painted in the ship's colors, read the sort of speech from Poseidon and we were, we were given our certificates. I don't remember getting a name. It, pro it probably wouldn't have been repeatable if I did get the name and then we were we were sprayed with bilge water so the the water from the ballast tanks of the ship so it was like old and stinky seawater and again covered in slop like you were covered in food waste but no it, it was nice it's a nice tradition and uh, I got a I got a turtle added to my sleeve to commemorate that oh very nice and that concludes episode two of the deep sea podcast I'm trying really hard to get these out roughly monthly. We're going to get better at doing this, so hopefully it's going to get a little bit easier, but I'm going to aim for doing it every month. So hopefully we'll be speaking to you again very, very soon. The Deep Sea Podcast is supported by Armatus Oceanic. If you would like to explore the Deep Sea, then we can help facilitate that. But if you want to bring the Deep Sea to your audience through storytelling or, uh, or other facts, fact-checking, we can help you with that as well. If you want me to come around your house and have a rant, I can do that as well. I mean, that's essentially <laughs> what it is. It's just professional ranting. Just go, right, that's not right, that's not right, you're not right, and you at the back don't have a clue what you're talking about. Yeah.